We have an exciting partnership to announce before we get into today's Scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt has been asked to join Reads Across America Radio, a 24-7 internet radio station where you can listen to veteran stories 24-7. Uh, you can find that on the iHeartRadio app. You can also find it on their website, readsacrossamerica.org. The Scuttlebutt will be featured Friday nights at 9 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. If you don't know anything about Reads Across America, they're an incredible organization, all dedicated to honoring veterans uh, and, and those who uh, gave all in service to our country. Check out the Scuttlebutt on their radio station and all the other programs that they have on their 24-7 radio station, again, on iHeartRadio app or readsacrossamerica.org. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the Veterans Breakfast Club on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. On there, you can sign up to become a member for a full year. You can sign up to get our free quarterly magazine. Uh, you can check out our blog. You can see all of the upcoming events, both online and in person, that we have coming up. Hope to see you at a future Veterans Breakfast Club event. Today on The Scuttlebutt, we will have author and Army veteran Tara Fields. She spent nearly 12 years in the Army and was a licensed clinical social worker. Uh, she continues that work on her own now. She is the author of the book Tracer Patient. Through this book, Tara wants to shine a light on mental health and how it is perceived and dealt with in the military. Uh, we all know that there is a high suicide rate amongst veterans. Uh, she is uh, a survivor of uh, suicide herself, and um, she brings all of her experience into this novel. She wants to provide um, really impactful solutions to the military about how they need to deal with mental health at a high level. She wants to spark action. She wants to motivate readers uh, so that they can see uh, through her eyes what she dealt with in the army and how she wants the system to be better. Um, this book is for everyone. It's not just for veterans. It's for non-veterans as well. Um, and I hope that you sit and listen to her story. Uh, it is uh, certainly one uh, that you don't want to miss, especially if you have a passion for helping veterans um, as she does. So thank you for watching. Please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org if you have any questions or thoughts about this book or any ideas for future scuttlebutts. I'd love to hear them. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. Joining me today on the scuttlebutt is Tara Fields. You are a former army officer, veteran, uh, but also you are the author of Tracer Patient. So excited for you to join me on the podcast here today. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, Sean, thanks for having me. Uh, so Tara Fields, I'm a former army officer, uh, almost 12 years of service, uh, both in the National Guard and then active duty. So I had eight years active duty service, transitioned to the Guard, and um, I operated in two different states as a clinical social worker after having gone through the Army Social Work Program. Uh, I too am a, a military spouse. My husband continues his service today. Um, he's almost in at 16 years. And uh, so, yeah, uh, definitely getting uh, team fields. Yeah, team fields. All right. I like that. Um, so when did you go in? It was 12 years and you were out about five years ago? Yeah, so that's correct. Um, I joined in 2007, uh, direct commission OCS. Um, and then I went through the Army. I went through the Army Social Work Program in 2012. Uh, and so that required a rank reduction, which is part of why I then transitioned to the Guard. I didn't get promoted, would be a two-time non-select. Um, back to captain after giving up the rank of captain to go to the social work program. But uh, it's funny how things work out. Um, anyway, so yeah, I was commissioned in 
2007, and I resigned my commission in 2019 uh, to publish the book, uh, Tracer Patient, A Game Changer to Mental Health Across the Military. We definitely want to get to your book. Uh, I want to dive a bit into your service because there's certainly a reason from your service that you wrote the book. Um, but in 2007, that was around surge time, I believe. Why at that point did you decide that you wanted to enlist in the Army? Yeah, so I came from, uh, you know, a, I was a military rat. My dad served on active duty for 22 years. He was enlisted. And I was on the fence for two years, give or take, um, of whether or not to join the military um, as an officer or go enlisted. Um, it was funny when I first went to college, I swear I would never join the military, but um, in the height of the war, um, you know, watching people die and and then being coming from such a military family and then being from kind of the Fort Riley community area surrounding Fort Riley, um, I, I just I felt like there's got to be something more. I was a probation officer in Junction City after uh, I finished with my undergrad degree and and I had a great job. I just thought that, gosh, there's something more. So I joined the army trying to get out of Junction City, Kansas, and the army sends me back. My first duty assignment was back at Fort Riley. So um, anyway, funny how that works. But I, I also met my husband um, at officer school. He actually had orders to go to Korea. Uh, and when we met, we actually only knew each other for five months before we got married. And mm talk about a leap of faith, but he would have been off to Korea had he not, him and I not got married. And uh, so off we came to Fort Riley and we've been, you know, we've been happily married ever since 15 years and four kids later. So they're getting us double time. Oh yeah. No, I got two. I can't imagine four. Um, <laughs> now this, I, I warned you before we started recording that I'm a civilian. I get to ask really dumb questions. You, you seem to say that you went the officer route instead of enlisted. And I said that, that you enlisted. Is that something that's different uh, for like our civilian audiences? I thought everybody enlists, but is there a difference between enlisted and officer? Yeah. So um, actually you're partially correct. Um, so when you direct commission to go to officer school, I was actually um, enlisted for all of basic training. So because I had my undergrad degree, I had a four-year degree already, gave me the opportunity to then um, go direct in as an officer. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but while you're going through basic training, you're a specialist. And then right when you graduate, you're uh, you're a sergeant just because you have to you have to hold the rank of an E5 to go to officer school. And so I never really wore the rank, but that's just kind of the, the protocol, if you will. Um, and so uh, then I went to officer training OCS down at Fort Benning. So you're, you're neither right or wrong. We'll say there. <laughs> so, sometimes sometimes in the military, it's like that. It's like sort of yes, sort of no. It's like <laughs> this yes. sort of odd gray area. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what I find interesting is uh, you came from a military family, you went in, did you, um, was it sort of a culture shock for you at basic? Or was it sort of like, oh, my dad, was worse than this. <laughs> no, you know, um, I think being that I came from a military background, uh, my dad, I think, and other people around me prepared me for basic training. Um, what was difficult about basic training is I was 25 when I went through our, the, mm. you know, basic training for whatever it was, 13 weeks. And I'm there with 18 year old knuckleheads, which is something that I talk about in the book, because like, I was a knucklehead at 18 and we should expect that these kids coming in at 18 are going to be knuckleheads. And so, um, you know, I think this is, this is also boding some problems when we live in a culture of like expediency, we want it now. 
but we need to understand what's coming in, who's coming into our military. And at 18 years old, we, we need to expect we're recruiting kids from broken homes, inner cities, uh, people coming from trauma and our knuckleheads, because one, your brain's not fully developed at 18 until you're 25 as a male. And so we, we kind of need to normalize what we're seeing in that population. But I think back to your question about basic training, uh, that was really difficult because we were getting smoked and, you know, having to do push-ups and all these kinds of things for people that were being knuckleheads. And I'm like, just get your shit together, you know, let's go. Like we got, you know, uh, but at the same time, you also learn that this is a team. This is, this is your new family. Um, they break you down to then build you back up. And so you kind of start to enjoy the process or at least appreciate the process as frustrating as the process is. Um, so at, at a certain point, you decided to um, go into social work. What yeah. necessitated that change? And you mentioned that you you had to take a, a what was it, a, a D rank? Yep, a rank reduction. So a rank reduction. Um, yeah. So after it, during OCS, officer school, um, there's several different branches that you could be assigned. And there was only one medical service corps officer, which would have been um, where I needed to be to be to be able to go to the social work program without having to take a rank reduction and a branch change. So I was a transportation corps officer. And so I did that for five years. And then, um, in so the army social work program came into existence in 2009. Great idea, great um, program to start creating its own pool of social work officers and mental health providers, especially, especially given, you know, all that we were seeing with war and, and soldiers coming back. Um, and needing a robust, more robust um, clinician pool. And so, um, but in 2009, when they created the program, there was no way yet for people that were already commissioned to transition into the Army Social Work Program without taking rank reduction. So when they sent out this message that said, hey, we're looking for other people that are already commissioned um, to go through the program, and this is how you would do it. So, I mean, I called them the next day. And they told me, hey, you're going to have to take a rank reduction to do this. My boss at the time at Fort Riley, um, Colonel Lambert, I will never forget. Um, he he was cautioning me out of, you know, he said, you're doing this at the wrong time. We're getting ready to go through a rank reduction. I sat down with him. I laid out this plan. And he said, you've obviously done your homework. So I'm going to back you. Um, and he signed the packet. And lo and behold, he still to this day hasn't told me I told you so. But he didn't have to because, um Years later, I would be two-time passed over for promotion to cap back to captain after I had already held that rank for over a year. And mm -hmm. so um, I talk about this in the book because of how we mismanage our talent in our military and we send these people packing um, is really, and, and really when we're stacking up bodies left and right to the suicide pandemic that we're dealing with right now, really we're we're not able to hold on to this this pool of officers that we've we've spent over seventy thousand dollars to train, but yet we're sending them back to the civilian sector. That's a problem. Yeah, without I mean, we've talked a lot on the on the podcast about that transition back and how the military does a really great job of getting you into the military, but not such a great job of getting you back to civilian life. If probably would you say a bad job? Yeah, well, I will tell you, uh, I think uh, just this is Tara Fields talking here, an argument that I would make is we actually do a terrible job transitioning people from the civilian sector into our military. And this is also something I talk about in our book. Mm -hmm. um, again, we know next to nothing about these service members that are coming in. And 
especially when we talk, we're, talk, we're here talking about PTSD, this month being suicide um, prevention month or PTSD, actually PTSD awareness month. Um, but when, when we are recruiting these inner city kids or kids coming from usually a lot of, and I won't say usually, but I would say 60 to 70% of who we're recruiting is coming in with a, a, a good amount of trauma and we don't know it. And so what better basic training than to do assessments and evaluations at the door? Um, and I'm talking things like the adverse childhood experience scale, um, which is called the ACE, um, which it's a 10 question questionnaire. And based on that, a high ACE score is four higher. Um, I will tell you 70% of who we're recruiting to come into our military have high ACE scores and we don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And so we're coming in with trauma, which it, when when you've dealt with trauma your whole life, it's you've lived in an erratic past. You know how to to cope when bullets are flying because bullets have been flying, so to speak, your whole existence. Um, and so we need to bring those people into our military. We need them to serve. They do well when we deploy, typically, because they know, you know, when when there's no gray space on the calendar and we're, you know, we're going on this mission, they know how to do that. What they struggle with is when there's nothing going on, there's paranoia, they're looking over the shoulder, they're waiting for the next shoe to drop, they're anxious, those sorts of things. So if we know that, now we can treat them at the door and in that treatment, now we're destigmatizing mental health. Oh, great concept. And so I talk about these things in the book is um, how we transition people in and how we transition people out must change. Um, you know, we're, we're broken. And we have, we definitely have room for improvement. So how can the military, um, we're kind of jumping straight into it, which is, which is fine. Uh, how can the military, um, if somebody comes in with a, a, a low ACE, ACE score, if they need a social worker or somebody to work with them, or what can the military do to provide them mental health therapy or, or um, treatments uh, throughout the course of like basic, where basic is very much about breaking you down to build this team, build this, you know, build this new soldier. Yeah. Well, I would say whether high or low ACE score, we're learning more than we know now um, with them coming in. And we need mm -hmm. that baseline testing because make no mistake, we're bringing them in to a pressure cooker. Okay. The, the system by itself for most people that have not experienced the military is traumatic. Okay. They're leaving home. They've never done this before. And that's without, let's just say no trauma. Let's say a zero ACE score. It's like going, I tell my patients when I'm assessing them and treatment, you know, think about your first day in kindergarten. We don't know if mom's going to be back. We don't know, like, you know, because uh, we've never been in kindergarten before, right? Mm -hmm. So um, then when mom comes, we're like, oh my gosh, we're relieved, like, okay. And then we do it better next, the next day and the next day, next day, we get better. Okay. Uh, but that first day, you probably don't sleep well, you know, think about any of those first, you know, mm -hmm. first podcast, first, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're going to have a certain level of anxiety because it's actually, anxiety is actually a good thing. It's your body's preparation for something it's not done before or doesn't know exactly how it's going to go. It's it's just, it's a beautiful thing when managed, okay? When, managed. oh gosh, I've not felt this before. Let me manage that with that. Okay, what's going on here? And now we're self-regulating, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's really what we have to teach these uh, patients or these recruits coming in um, in our military is that, Gosh, especially so many people don't know how to self-regulate. And now you're going to come into a pressure cooker. And if you already struggled with self-regulation and other behaviors um, because of trauma, 
you're really going to struggle because you haven't got those tools and skills. And so we, we can, um, we can do things. Actually, I was meeting with some leadership at Fort Riley a couple of days ago, and we were talking about, um, you know, different ideas that I've, I've highlighted in the book, but, um, at Fort Riley, even if we can't, we're waiting on mandates to come down and all this at Fort Riley, what they've discussed is potentially doing this at, um, at the reception site. So we get new soldiers coming into Fort Riley, we can do some of this at that reception site before they go to their unit. So um, it's it's pretty awesome though at this point, just I'm, I've really feared when this book came out, um, having worked on this for five years, really feared how it was gonna be received. And you could see over here, there's there's a anxiety ladder actually that I showed patients and that's actually my anxiety ladder um, that I did uh, four months ago. And I, I just kind of show it on the wall, but. Um, at the top was book reception, because um, I'm ruffling the feathers of our federal partners to say, hey, this we cannot continue doing this. Um, and that's a scary feat, especially given the fact that my husband's still active duty. Um, I'm not trying to piss in anybody's salad or, you know, make anybody look bad. In fact, like our pants at our ankles, and I'm trying to help us, uh, you know, help our leaders just be better moving forward. And I know there's things way above even, you know, the leadership that I met with at Fort Riley, even above their heads that has to change. And mm -hmm. I said, Hey, I, I know this stuff is way above your head, but you can start affecting the culture here at Fort Riley. Um, so we talked a lot about culture and training, um, those sorts of things. So did they seem receptive to that? Very much so. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, you know, Fort Riley, I'll, I'll talk specifics. They, they recently, within the last two weeks, had what's called a suicide stand down because they've had so many suicides, not just here at Fort Riley, but throughout their the core, um, which I think is four or five installations um, that constitutes the core. Anyway, um, but they've had 25 suicides at the core level since January 1st. And so they had a suicide stand down a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I and think these, I'm sorry to interrupt. These are active duty, active duty service members that have taken their lives. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Um, in your first time, when you first got in, what, uh, what did you notice? What did you see a, a part of the people around you, uh, that, that made you decide I want to go into social work or was social work always something that you were interested in? No, social work, it was never something that I didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to be a social worker. Um, and it wasn't really a social work program, um, you know, came out with um, this mandate looking to be able to, to transition um, soldiers to, um, and I guess maybe within the year before that, there'd been talking about it. And I had my undergrad in psychology, which, so the field kind of came maybe a little natural to me. I, I gravitate to people. Um, I love engaging with people. Um, and just, just at that time though, like coming into our military, again, we'd been at war at that point, six, seven years, um, recognizing that the force was tired, very exhausted. Um, and just the complaints that my soldiers would come back and say, you know, I sat down with so-and-so that really doesn't understand the militarisms. And, you know, I spend half my session talking about an acronym that they have no idea what it means and then mm -hmm. my session's over. And so I think um, as a young officer at that point, that was appealing to me. Um, and as an officer, the higher you get in rank, the further you get from troops. And so I think being a clinician was also appealing because as you promote through the ranks, you're still a clinician and you get to treat soldiers every day. 
And so for me, it was a win-win. And so when Colonel Lambert, back to Colonel Lambert, when he, you know, was saying, hey, you're doing this at the wrong time, we're getting ready to go through a drawdown in troops, this is 2012. Um, and uh, I told Colonel Lambert, I said, this is exactly what I want to do. And I explained to him that, um, you know, that as officers, the further we get in rank, the further we get from troops in command and leadership, you actually become then a policy writer and, you know, a politician, you know, as you get higher and higher. And so uh, for me, this was very appealing. And so that's really how it happened. What did you see now, obviously HIPAA laws and whatnot, but what did you see as you, uh, you know, started to go into social work in the army and started to experience and work with, with the soldiers? Um, it was like drinking from a fire hose, actually 10 of them. Um, we, we needed more and more and we had less and less. Um, and I think being, and I think we've come a long way with stigma in our military, but we have a long way to go. Um, and just some downright ignorance when it comes to mental health, um, and, and just misunderstandings of what, you know, PTSD, for example, PTSD to me is not a disorder. Okay. It's actually an adaptation. There's reasons for this behavior. Um, and so let's, let's take a kid from childhood trauma. Okay. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, whatever, neglect, whatever it is. Okay. They've learned some adaptive behavior in that, in that environment. If you're still in the childhood home, we're going to learn to adapt to survive. But then we leave that childhood home at 18 and we go into the army, let's just say. Um, and now that behavior that was once adaptive in that childhood home, we've now changed our environment and it becomes maladaptive if we're still utilizing the same behavior that boded well there, but the environment changes. And that's the problem with PTSD victims um, or uh, people that have, you know, this post-traumatic stress is the ability to bounce back or readapt, okay, mm -hmm. is a recognize, recognizing that actually real versus perceived threat. We perceive because, because of the amount of trauma that we've come from, especially if it's not just one or two isolated days, we're talking about 18 years of childhood abuse, trauma, things from inception all the way until they leave, okay, very complex trauma that is rooted in every, the way they think, the way they behave, the way they feel, uh, all these things. And then we're, I, I find it very troubling when we say, well, you got a disorder. No, we should be asking these guys, man, how did, like I had a patient yesterday, she had a, a nine, a score, very high trauma. I said, I should be asking you, how the hell are you survived all this? Like you have impeccable survivability skills, which, you know, um, and so when you kind of start talking from a place of strength, it gives them more power that they didn't have, okay? Mm -hmm. And then we come into the military and let's talk about the power, you know, the power dynamic, right? And this is any hierarchical culture. This is, I'm not talking bad about the military. It's just the nature of what we do and what we have to do. Mm -hmm. But you come into this military dynamic that has this hierarchical culture and we feel like, okay, I, I didn't have power here. And now I come here and I'm a private, but learning that this power control dynamic is not about rank. It's about self. It's taking care of self, okay, and managing self in the constructs of the system. But we look at that and say, oh my gosh, well, I can't talk to so and so, or I can't elevate this, you know, because I'm I'm afraid I'm going to get, you know, an Article 15, or I'm going to get in trouble for articulating this. So then we're quiet. And and I actually talked to the general and the hospital commander, Fort Riley, about this very thing. 
this this idea in the military, and this is where I think a lot of our anxiety comes from within the system, mm-hmm. is that we have to just shut up and like it, or there's a perception that we just have to shut up and like it. But in the book, I actually talk about how we have to have assertive conversation, and we need to actually add this to a, one of our being one of our military values. Okay, we need to have assertive conversation respectfully. Okay, I need to be able to tell the, the general as a captain, hey, sir, we've got some major flaws here, and these are some concerns that we have, um, and, and, you know, be respectful, but when we don't feel like we have the ability to do that, and we have to hold that, that becomes a wrecking ball in your head, you know, and this, this breeds one of two things in the worst form, okay, with anxiety, we continue to step and step and step and step, and we start saying things like, I don't matter, nobody cares, why am I here? Okay. And one of two things are going to happen. Okay. Over time, it's going to, we're going to stuff so much that we're going to want to explode. Okay. Catch a charge, get really irritated. This is where people get article 15s for speaking out, getting in trouble. Okay. Or we're going to implode and that's suicide. I don't matter. We start writing a suicide note. Why am I here? What I say doesn't matter. Nobody cares about me and people implode. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't, if we don't start changing this culture, within our military, okay, of being able to have assertive conversations with our leadership respectfully, you're going to see more suicides. It seems like you've uh, sort of pushed on in your career to a, a type of policy change. And do you think this needs to happen just in in the military? Or will this take uh, like an, an act by Congress to like, like the PACT Act, something, something that they pass that says, the, these are the things that that our military has to do from now on, like, ACE scores when the when someone joins the military, we need to track mental health throughout their service. We need to implement uh, treatments and ways for us to be there beyond just like the VA, uh, you know, post post service. Absolutely. So the whole second part of my book, do I go into policy changes um, that I'm recommending? Things from uh, I'll just kind of highlight a couple of them. Uh, things like the Ferris Doctrine. So the Ferris Doctrine prevents. Um, uh, civilian entities from suing um, the federal entities, okay, hospitals, okay, where there's negligence, we can't sue the hospital because there's there's this Ferris Act that has been in place since 1956 that prevents us from suing the federal government. Well, now we have no accountability, okay? This is where, in fact, we're sweeping these things under the rug, and we're, when we do that, we're foregoing the opportunity for learning self-correcting and learning because we're more worried about optics, liability, and culpability. But in that, we're actually creating that liability and culpability 20-fold. Mm-hmm. So that's an example that I talk about in the book. Um, how we bring soldiers in is another uh, thing that I think we need to, to change um, systemically, how we're bringing people in. Um, I know just since the book has been published, they have um, added different policies of um, and we look at Gen- Genesis actually is a, as a database with all medical records. So we have a little bit more visibility, a lot more visibility of, um, you know, if, if Joe from Cincinnati is coming in to the military, we can look at Joe's medical records all the way up until he's trying to come in and enlist. Um, so we have a little bit more visibility, but the visibility is, is great. But we also, we need the visibility plus now the treatment aspect and what better place to do that than at the door. Um, Because with that treatment aspect, now we can reframe 
what this kid is coming in with and, and destigmatize mental health in a way and give him tools. Um, cause that kid needs something very different from another kid. I call it the silver spoon effect comes from like rich America, you know, never wanted for anything. Um, you know, had parents that were there all the time. He has a different, he has different needs too, because he too is going to struggle when he goes to the military, that kid that had the silver spoon in his, in, in his mouth can struggle too in the military. And, um, that not going to be fun. The kid in the, the, that came from a high A score has learned how to struggle, knows how to do it, knows how to portray a certain thing. He's had to walk on eggshells his whole freaking life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, those are the ones that scare you because you don't know they, they're, they're the life of the party. They're hilarious, but they're, they're a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if we know that we, we need to know more about them and it's not, oh my gosh, you have a high A score. No, you can't come in. Okay. It's, hey, you have a nice, a high A score, and this is what we're going to do to help treat you, and we're going to love on you, and, and then you're going to be the better for it, and we need you, okay? Make yeah. no mistake. We are 30, only 30% of our, of our nation is even capable of serving in the military based on the medical standards alone, Right. okay? 30%, okay? So look, like we're sending these soldiers out for minuscule stuff or building counseling and chapter packets because they're being knuckleheads from 18 to 25, um, doing stuff that's pretty normal. Um, but just think it, it, none of us got bred overnight, right? None of us got to where we are without somebody taking us under their wing and mentoring us. The military, we've gotten so far away from mentorship. And I blame this uh, in large part by the war, okay? 22 years at war, and we've been training, deploy, train, deploy, constant. And we have a force that is exhausted. Yeah. Okay. And so w- when, when we look at those federal mandates and going to our politicians and saying, Hey, you know, okay, whew, we need to turn those floodgates off. However. Okay. Um, but those mandates that come down, we have more and more mandates and things that we have to do. And we have less and less personnel because mm-hmm. people are getting out in droves. They're put, being pushed out for article 15s for minuscule stuff where we should have been building a counseling packet and mentoring them to better days. But instead we're, we're building a counseling packet in a way to get rid of them. Okay. And that is, that is wrong. And that's negligible. Um, and fiscally irresponsible on one, one, one side, it takes a lot. It's 70, I think it's $70,000 to get an E1 through his first um, three years of enlistment, $70,000. So we're just like pencil whipping all these, okay, get him out. He's he's not conforming. He's not, because we have a tired force. That's a culture problem. Mm-hmm. That kid's doing normal stuff, okay? Coming mm-hmm. into a military that is tired and doesn't want to hear it, <laughs> you know? And so we are negligent. Our system, our culture within a military is negligible. And everybody in it that continues to do and just look the other way because it's how we've always done it. And so um, more than anything, without a mandate, changing the culture starts with each individual. Right. And so the book really serves as a, a mirror. Um, and I tell, put, put, put this book in front of you. And if you're exuding some of the policy or some of the characteristics that I talk about in here is toxic then you need to look at yourself in the face and say, okay, what do I need to do to address this? You know, Mm -hmm. if I know that Sergeant so-and-so has a 10 A score and, you know, I'm calling him every name in the book and wondering why he's shutting down or, you know, all of a sudden he went AWOL. 
okay, we need to address ourselves, okay? Um, and see, and I think, I think even beyond the military, I say this, I think we should walk around with our ACE scores on our head. Think about how differently we would interact with people if we knew that they had a six, seven, eight, nine, ten ACE score. Okay. Now, of course, there's some people out there that, that aren't very nice and that will take advantage of that. And, and, um, but think about that. If we knew, man, that makes more sense, makes more sense in the behaviors that I'm seeing. It changes, it changes the dynamic. And, um, I told the leadership at Fort Riley, I'd love to come train you guys every, I'll, I'll, I'll train you guys pro bono, um, if I have to, because I'm sick and tired of watching these bodies stack up um in the system it just well it's certainly telling where like the military that's not a one-size-fits-all it's like hey this is our basic we're going to break it down we're going to build you up but we want to create and i've recently talked with a marine um who said you know we didn't want everybody on our team if there was somebody that was slacking if there was somebody that you know um couldn't cut it we we didn't want to be in combat with them and that made sense to me. I understand that you don't you don't want somebody on the squad that that you aren't you know fully trusting in a combat situation. Certainly in just like Marines, but also Army. But you make a lot of sense and a lot of good points in the idea of if they're going to break you down to build you back up to be the best soldier that you can be, then why not add this a part of it? Because this will this only aids that. This only helps to create the best soldier possible. Yeah, and you used a, a very critical word right there: is trust. And back to your example, trust doesn't happen overnight, right? Trust happens in training and reforming and saying, oh my gosh, okay, dealing with conflict or saying, hey, Joe over there is not performing to our standard where we are, okay? The the ownership of the group is saying, okay, yeah, we need to help build him up, okay? And some people are just downright going to resist, okay? I use this example. There was a, a gal in basic training who her dad was a sergeant major. She absolutely did not want to join the military. Her dad made her join the military and she was not having it. I mean, we'd go out to do the PT test and she would just flop down on the, her butt on the, on the platform. And she's like, I'm not doing this PT test. And eventually she got kicked out because she wasn't, didn't matter who all wanted her to go. If she wasn't going to do it Okay, with that, right. There's a a individual ownership and and there's some people that just downright are not going to be fit for military service. Um, and, and that's okay. Okay. And we need to have a good system of getting that person out and giving them a high five or a fist dab or whatever. Say, thank you for coming in. You, you had a great intention to come in and serve. Thank you for doing that. It just wasn't going to work out, but instead we, we cast a, a freaking, you know, knife in their back and chastise them on their way out. That does nobody any good because what we just did, that person is a recruiter. Okay, how you transition somebody is going to dictate whether or not they speak highly of the organization or negatively. Mm-hmm. Completely, you know, and it, it you know. So, so if you when you decided to resign your commission, I'm sure that was a difficult decision, but it was. You said it was the, the reason for doing that was to write the book. Yeah, and absolutely. How did you? One, I'm sure it was difficult to make that decision, and how did you come to that? And two, how? How did you start writing the book? Yeah. So um, this part is is hard for me to talk about. Um, I miss the military every day. Mm-hmm. I loved every day of my military service. Um, 
and in many ways I'm still serving today. I just don't wear the uniform. Um, and I knew, I knew if I was going to write this book, I had to take the uniform off because, um, like I say in the book, and I told my brigade commander the day I resigned my commission, sir, if I, if I, uh, stay in uniform, if I stand here, um, in this uniform where I stand, I'm going to end up in Leavenworth conduct on becoming of an officer um, because we can't speak out in that uniform. So I knew I had to take the uniform off to do what I knew must be done mm -hmm. to take this to policy writers, because it doesn't matter at, at our level, whether we're in the military or you in that studio. Okay. If it are, if at the lowest levels, okay, we're peons down here, right? Down here at the, the lowest levels. Um, it doesn't matter what we do if the policy doesn't match what's going on here. And there's mm -hmm. such a disconnect. Um, and so the book became, how can I capture the disconnect? Um, and where the book, how the book came to be was, um, so when I first, so eight, eight years active duty, four years in the guard. So when I transitioned, when I got forced out of the army um, as an active duty army officer I was actually in the midst of the social work internship program so I was at Fort Hood during that time how did you get forced out forced out because I got passed over twice for promotion so I basically got a pink slip and <clears throat> at the time I was in the army social work program and they couldn't tell me anything I did wrong there was nothing in my in my record whatsoever um, that would dictate and, and all I can deduce is that they saw Lieutenant OER, Lieutenant OER, Captain OER, Lieutenant, and they thought she did something wrong. So I got passed over in the middle of the social work program. Um, and <clears throat> so then uh, 11 days from when I was, my final out day was supposed to be one February of 16 or 15. Uh, I went to a recruiter in Texas and uh, they said, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to blast a you know, an email to 54 states and territories to see if they would be interesting, interested in funding the rest of your program um, as an internship or the SWIP program, internship, social work internship program. So <clears throat> they did that and uh, Texas came on board and they ended up funding my last year. So I stayed in the same clinic doing the same work. It was just a different funding source. Um, and, uh, at that point, after I finished the year, uh, the full two-year internship program, um, the Texas guard, I never drilled with them a day. They said, Hey, this happened to a lot of PA students. You're free and go or free to go, um, free and clear. If you don't need to give us, cause the, the contract was two years for the one year. So I owed him two years of service for the one year of, uh, for the education, mm -hmm. but my husband got orders to Virginia. And, um, at that point. I, I could have walked away free and clear from the military. Well, I didn't take this rank reduction just to walk away from the military. Like this was, you know, my plan was to do 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, at the time, um, I, I, I was, I was just very sad and deflated because I was like, how in the heck did this happen? I just, I felt gut punched really mm -hmm. um, that this would even happen. But uh, so in the IST, I interstate transferred to Virginia because I said, you know, the guard doesn't have um, therapists and they need therapists. So I said, well, we're in the National Guard and we'll go on about our day. Well, <clears throat> I get out to Virginia and I was out in Virginia National Guard for two and a half years. Um, the weekend I arrived, we had a suicide stand down because they had had four or five suicides within the previous maybe six or eight months. I don't, I can't recall. Um, and so, um, got just very motivated to make changes, um, got boots on the ground and uh, was very active. 
And I, one day I was complaining to my husband about, um, you know, the lack of systems in the, the Virginia National Guard um, with respect to mental health. And this Lieutenant Colonel approached the table and he said, um, I happen to know a Fulberg Colonel um, personally at the National Guard Bureau that um, is responsible for all 54 states and territories mental health um, in the Guard. So oh, that's awesome. So he gave me her contact information. I emailed her that day and met with her at the Pentagon three days later. And she shared with me at that point that there was three, or I'm sorry, four states and territories that didn't have full-time mental health um, providers. Virginia and Kansas were two of those four states. I thought, well, that's interesting. So that's uh, that started this kind of um, just, uh, I was total, just tenacious about, okay, if, if that's where we're at, that's not where we're staying. So I, I put all this stuff together. I got with her, I asked her who was, you know, paving the way in her view what states was reaching out to them for their policies what are they doing how did they get to where they're at um and so that's really what then took a lot of my time i i presented the general um uh it was like 37 page powerpoint presentation about how to do this how to fund it why it's needed they didn't want to fund it and i said well i can lead the horse the water i can't make him drink it my time in the virginia national guard was very short-lived um and then we, we knew we were coming back to Kansas and I'm from Kansas. Um, and so I ISTed to the Kansas National Guard already knowing that they were kind of behind the times. I get here and we had a cluster of six suicides in six months. Um, the worst was three in three weeks. And this prompted, um, I just, oh, this is the title of the chapter, but it's the night I lost my shit for all the right reasons. Um, and People have often asked me, was the work too much? The work is not too much. Um, I see very, very high risk patients all day, every day. The work is not the problem. The work in a broken system is the problem. Um, and <clears throat> so I ended up in the hospital and day two, I wake up in the hospital and I'm in a civilian um, hospital in Kansas City. And I wake up and I'm looking around day two and I'm talking to doctors, lawyers, nurses, architects in the inpatient psych unit. And I'm, I was baffled. I said, what the heck is like, what is this? You know, I, these, these people, very professional people were the least, uh, I, I would have never guessed that they would have been an inpatient psych. But the more I got to think about it and engage them, it, on any given day, those people, those professionals are holding in the, way, in the palm of their hands on any given day, people's lives. Yeah. But when you're holding the weight of people um, in broken systems, you're holding that weight 20 fold. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that is true stress. And so um, when I was in the hospital, they gave us a manual or basically like a composition notebook to go to groups and, you know, jot things down and journal. Well, this became the manuscript because I, I was writing letters to toxic leaders. I was writing chapter ideas, um, all of this that, that actually became tracer patient. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide on that title? So trace and patient is um, a term that is used for joint commission. Joint commission is um, a, an entity that investigates hospitals. So they come to investigate hospitals for accreditation purposes and they'll assign tracers or go shoppers. Okay. So they say, okay, Sean, you're going to, they're going to meet you outside the hospital and they say, okay, Sean, you're going to be one of our tracers and you're going to present to the emergency room with these symptoms. And you know that you're faking these symptoms, but you're 
your sole job is to go into that hospital for two weeks to um, see how you're treated, to look at equipment, is it calibrated appropriately, all this stuff. And so um, you're a ghost shopper to really what they're there to do is find negligence before people are really dying in those gaps or those areas of negligence. And so you're coming back to the team after that two weeks that they're usually on site to report the things so that these things can be addressed and the, the entity is a lot better for it. And so I became, excuse me, the tracer patient as a real patient. Um, and when I got out of the hospital, um, I poked our organization right in the chest and said, how come it took you guys three months to call a high-risk soldier? I don't care that I'm a clinical social worker. I don't care that I'm a female or 40 years old or that I've deployed, um, whatever. It doesn't matter. You're at most risk leaving a hospitalization for a whole month. Okay, you're high risk because you're going back to the same stressors, but it took you guys three months to call a high-risk patient. Okay, these systems, we have no tracking mechanisms. How in the heck were we 21 years into a war and we don't have this stuff figured out? Okay, it wasn't a kind process. Okay, um, and then on top of that, I'm getting told that, or I started getting counseling statements. Um, basically, they thought that I concocted this, like I had some, like I don't have better things to do for six days of my life. Um, but no, I had a psychiatric break. It was not fun. Um, and I, I can't, to this day, I can't believe I did what I did. And um, really, I'll just kind of say, and you can read about it, but I um, I had wrapped a cord around my neck. And this was after my husband had called the authorities. Um, one night, I uh, we were sitting at home in Leavenworth. Um, and this kid that, uh, one of the kids that I highlight in the book, because I go into his whole story, this kid that I knew was high risk, his buddy had just um, been our second suicide in that cluster of three and three weeks. Um, I hadn't heard from Schaefer in three days. And um, I met with the unit command earlier that day. And I said, listen, I haven't heard from Schaefer in three days. Um, I'm prepared to go locate this kid. Can I have his address? And first of all, the commander said, Tara, you're wasting your time. He's a dirtbag. We're just trying to get him out. I said, I know he's not being a stellar soldier right now, but he is ours and I need to go locate him. Do, can I get his address? They said, well, we don't have an address on file. So now who's holding the weight of this kid's life? I have no recourse. I have no way to call law enforcement, no way to get a hold. Of, I have no idea where he lives. Um, so now I'm holding the weight of this kid's life. And I knew he was, there was no higher risk soldier in our formation. Mm -hmm. um, and so later that night, um, we had just eaten and Cody was, he was in the uh, program. So he, he had a lot of reading and a lot of schoolwork. And so he had gone up to do his studies and I was, um, I just sit down after dinner and the kids are high octane, you know, you have kids, so you can yeah. understand that. So they're high octane, young, jumping, screaming. And I'm, um, I just sit in the chair and I just started to cry because I'm, I'm thinking about all these conversations I've had with leaders whistles I had sounded just falling on deaf ears, um, talking to the hospital leadership um, and the commander earlier in the day, all falling on deaf ears. And um, so I just start crying. And in that moment, I thought, okay, I just need to get to the next thing. So I start cleaning up the kitchen and I'm checking, like, I've never got to this point, but like, I was like checking hard dishes into the top of the refrigerator mm -hmm. and just sobbing. And so um, the kids, cause I had screamed, I was like, get out. Like the kids were running and screaming. So they go upstairs and they're like, something happened with mom. So Cody comes down, my husband, and he's like, Tara, just calm down. I said, Cody, this organization, they don't care about its people. I said, Schaefer is going to be our next suicide victim if we don't do something about it. And he said, Tara, just calm down. So at this point, the kids start trickling downstairs and I don't want them to see this. So I go into the garage 
And the statement that I made to him in that moment was this one more expletive word provider need to kill themselves for somebody to wake up. Cause we had just actually in that cluster of three and three weeks, we also had a civilian commit suicide. That was a clinician. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so anyway, um, I say this and I said, well, maybe if I took that rope by that rafter, I could wake somebody up. And my husband has never heard me talk like that. So he set foot back in the house. He calls the authorities unbeknownst to me. And uh, about 10 minutes later, I step foot back in the house and I'm talking to my daughter and I, I talk about all this in the book, but, um, mm-hmm. and she, I had up to that point, I'd explained to her about suicide. And I, I, I had told her up to that point that, you know, some people just sometimes don't um, want to live anymore. They're so sad that they don't want to live anymore. And she sees me still very much crying. And, and she said, mommy, do you want to live? And I'm thinking, how am I having that conversation with my nine-year-old? Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, my son's coming to the door, going by the door and seeing police respond to the door. We've never had cops at our house um, at that point, it, you know, 10 years of marriage. And um, so uh, Bo, my son says, mom, why are the police here? And then it kind of snapped me out of the state that I found myself in. And my husband's looking at me like arms out. He's like, I didn't know what else to do. And I said, you call the cops. So I'm trying to get myself together. And the cops come in and I explain, I'm not suicidal. I'm not homicidal. I am concerned about Schaefer. And, you know, so I go through all this. And they said, well, now that we're here, you need to go, you have to go to the hospital for an evaluation, which I understood. So my husband said, I'll take her. The cops leave. Um, they go on about their shift. They didn't call head to the hospital. So we get in the car with all four kids. And I asked my husband, I was like, please just turn around. This is just ridiculous. Um, he, he, he very delicately is like, I think we should just go get the evaluation, you know, just follow the, the recommendation. And I was like, you don't get it. Um, and this is very hypocritical as a clinician, but I was like, once the unit finds out about it, they're going to try to chapter me and all this stuff. Like it's very real, um, that yeah. perception. Um, and I don't know if it's real or perceived. Um, I can tell you that I've seen a lot of packets started because people went to get mental health care and that just cannot continue. But very much in that, um, he, we continued to the hospital. We get to the hospital and I told him just, you know, wait, my brother was going to come tend to the kids. And I said, I'll be in there. I'll check in. Um, so at this point I'm walking unaccompanied into the hospital. Um, I bypassed the front desk. And I mean, if I was zero to 60 up to that point, walking into this hospital who I'm usually who they call to do that evaluation, you know, calling, um, on-call providers to come in and evaluate somebody after hours. Um, and I was just like replaying these conversations, whistles I had been sounding, last I've been getting for, you know, speaking truth to power. So I bypass the front desk and I go to the bathroom because I needed to use the bathroom legitimately. And uh, this is where I know I wasn't quite well that night because I know they're going to need specimens. I know all of these things like cerebrally, I know these things, but I go into the bathroom, I use the bathroom and I look to my left. And again, I'm my, my hamster wheel is just spinning. I can't believe I'm here. Um, I just, uh, just baffled. I'm considered or just very scared about like Schaefer and every range of emotion. But I look look to my left and there's a cord on the wall that said pull for help. And I start laughing hysterically. And I was like, now I'm talking to the Lord. And I'm like, in this moment, I was like, yeah, no shit. I need help. You know, I can't do this by myself. Um, And in that moment, I just, I, I just pulled the cord and I wrapped it around my neck. And maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds. I mean, it wasn't long because it's the hospital bathroom. So they knew somebody was in there and then the rest was history. I was back 
uh, all, you know, full precautions and six mm-hmm. days late, you know, I went to another hospital six days later. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, that's how it happened. Um, and I write about it. I almost didn't write the book because of what I just told you. Um, I so many times try to talk myself out of it, but there's so many, I sit with patients all day that will say the same things. Um, you know, I can't believe that happened. I would have never guessed. And, and in the book I write, you know, I was, I'm the strongest person I know until I wasn't. And we're, every one of us are capable of that. Tara, I have to, no one could write this book, uh, probably as truthfully as you having been as close to it as you are both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, not just to the people that are dealing with uh, mental health, mental trauma, but but for going through it yourself, you 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 you're taking yourself up to the edge there. Um, I also have to commend you for the strength it takes to tell this story, um, especially you know the book comes out and there's like I said at the beginning, there's a reason you wrote the book. Um, yeah. Getting to that reason and talking about this is not easy. So I have to commend you and I want to thank you for for talking about it um, because. Anybody who's written a book, or if you haven't written a book, you know that it takes a lot to just get out there and start talking about it. But you, you to tell this story consistently to everybody that you talk to, to 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 promote the book is not easy. That's climbing a mountain every time you yeah. do it, and that's yeah. and I just have to to highlight that that thank you for for talking about this, um, and 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 just recognizing your passion for helping everyone knowing that the position you were in in the army and the national guard that you were not able to uh speak to this you know i think is uh it's very unfortunate because we you know everything that you've talked about up until this point on the podcast it you know it shines a light that the military probably would not want the the light to be on and and it it necessitates change. It necessitates what we need to do for our service members. As we've talked, we want to build the best soldiers we can, but not just that. We want to build better civilians. And for someone to come in that might have trauma, they need to be heard. And for you know, it's like it's great that the army's instituted a social worker. It's really unfortunate that then that social worker comes out and it's falling on deaf ears, and they're just saying, "Well, he's a dirtbag. We want him out of here." Well, no, you still have him in, so we owe him this. We owe them this. That we owe her this. Um, I, I just, uh, you know, I'm, despite all saying that, I feel like I'm, I'm at a, a loss for words about just, uh, uh, you know, I wish it were easier for you to be able to. It's not easy. It's not been easy. Certainly. No, no. But you know, um, better days are ahead. Um, I'm definitely five years post that incident. Um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely. The most strong I've ever been, um, and in fact, there there is an army social worker currently that um, is going through an army social work um, program that allows her to transition. She's going through a medical board, and she gets to come shadow me. It's part of a CSP program where it's like um, it's a career skills program is what it stands for, um, and uh, she, in a lot of ways, has gone through a lot of the similar things I did in the, the system. Um, they tried to take her clinical license for no more than talking to a, a formation of troops saying that she struggled in 2018 with like some passive ideations. 
Um, and a colonel overheard her conversation and he, they have since grounded her clinically, but then the army sent her to me and we've since got her clinically licensed and all these things in Kansas and she's doing well, but they told her she'll never treat again. I'm saying, are you serious right now? We've got bodies stacking up over here and we're, we're castrating these clinicians for mm -hmm. trying to destigmatize mental health. Just wait until she's out and I get to send that leader a book. Okay. Um, and I'm doing this not to make that leader feel bad, but that leader needs to put that book in front of him and realize the damage that he is doing tenfold, not just to that person, but to the many people now that she was going to be able to treat. Um, mm -hmm. And he doesn't even see it. See that that is in fact, why people come to therapy is because they're blind. They don't, they know something's wrong. They don't know what it is. And uh, you know, so there's this, there's this, um, chart it's called the jahari window and it talks about like uh there's a blind spot things that people know about us but we don't know about ourselves okay that that's interesting how do we not know this about ourselves but other people can see um and i, I told the two-star general when i left well before i left i told him i said sir you got crap paper i'll just use a nice word you got crap paper coming out of the bat you know coming out of your rear side coming out of the bathroom and nobody wants to pull you aside and tell you so um, and he doesn't even have the, he doesn't see himself as part of the problem. Um, and so when I say that book becomes a mirror, as you read through the book, I start the book, just like I would any other patient in like uh, session initially, they have to get to know the person yeah. because we have to build trust. I'm sharing what I need to with you. My most vulnerable day, by the way, mm -hmm. um, so that you realize, man, whatever you share, I'm not here to judge you. And I hope you don't judge me for what I just shared with you. And right. so that self-disclosure used clinically and ethically is very powerful. And we just sent a clinician out the door because of self-disclosure. What the hell? Okay. Um, yeah, that makes no sense. No, but it's okay. Cause we're, uh, I told her to get ready after she's out in January, she'll be joining me on Senate floor to tell these stories. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we can correct these things. We must, we will correct them. I have no doubt. Um, part of this campaign, I will also personally be funding, um, $20,000 $20, worth of books. That'll go 585, um, copies to every Senator governor and sitting house of representatives member. Um, so you know, anybody out there? please jump on my, uh, I've got a tracer patient, tracer patient, um, GoFundMe page. Um, I, I need people's support. Uh, and if you just want to fund one or two books for, you know, dele the delegation in your state, great. Send me a note. Um, I'm pinning, um, I'm pinning individual comments to each one of these leaders because we have to do this together. Um, there is major policy changes that have to happen. Um, and that's where, you know, my next, my next, uh, endeavor is going to be because it doesn't matter what we're doing down here if we don't listen to these anecdotal stories um and take it to the powers that be it'll never change that's how we change the culture we'll make sure in the links below so if you're listening make sure you check your podcast description if you're watching on youtube check the description below this video there will be a link to the gofundme page um you know we obviously here at bbc want to help you along on this uh you know this goal this this mission that you're on uh it it it, there's never been a, a more important time. Um, as you said, there's a, a suicide pandemic happening and, you know, it's, it's much needed for policy to change, to be able to aid those that are coming into the military. It's, it's interesting. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you said that at the beginning that, 
um, you think that the way that we transition people into the military is kind of terrible because all I've ever kind of heard over the last several years of doing this scuttlebutt is we do a really good job of getting them in the military, but I think it's defining it. We do a really good job of breaking down and building you up to be a soldier. It's not necessarily we do a great job of assessing where you are in life yes. and then deciding on a path for you um, yeah. through your military journey. Um, and that is, uh, it, I, I've only heard it said now on the podcast that that has to be much more important. That has to be almost at the forefront because to create great soldiers and great citizens and, and that, you know, that is something that the military needs to start looking at, you know, yeah. a part of, a part of the packet that I received in the lead up to this discussion was the acronym help. Now the army mm -hmm. is no stranger to acronyms and there's no way that I, <laughs> I don't know any of the acronyms, barely any MOS maybe. Um, but can you tell me what help is um, that you have there and, and the average everyday civilian sees this, what, what do they need to know about help and what it, what it's defined as? Well, first of all, I have to give kudos to Mackenzie, um, my media agent, um, because I didn't come up with help. I said, where did you get this Mackenzie? And she, I think has uh, read the book or parts of the book and came up with this acronym based on things that were in my book. And I was like, did you do this? And she said, yes. So I, I can't take credit. I won't take credit for this, but uh, Mackenzie came up, up with these, but um, help she um, took uh, upon herself and it says hold space. Okay. So we want to be able to hold space for the individual. At the end of the day, they are coming in with a lot of uh, issues. Um, we need to be in the space, be meaningful, present, um, and allow them the work that needs to be done, but walking with people. Okay, um, this this idea of togetherness um, is is powerful. In fact, um, Dr. Gentry, I talked a lot about this this um, amazing clinician that uh, has shaped me into the clinician I am. But he talks often um, about sixty to seventy percent of uh, what a patient is going to get in trauma therapy has to do with the relationship that they have with the provider. The holding space also requires that whoever we're sitting with, um, that we don't offer any advice, that we're not pushing an agenda, that we're free of judgment, that we're walking with them. And I get to do this with everybody every day, which is, I have the best job in the world. Um, Boy, that's saying something. Hold, yeah, um, holding space. And that that is really hard to hold judgment or withhold judgment. It's really hard sometimes because we too have baggage. We too get triggered by things and get called to recall different things based on our experiences. Um, the E stands for effective treatment. Um, it's funny. Um, I have since created a T4 therapy, which um, it stands for two things, T fields, trauma therapy, and training. Um, and it also stands for from trauma to thriving through togetherness and effective treatment. Okay. So that's the business that I now own and operate. Um, but effective treatment, um, uh, I will just tell you, we, we came from Boston. We went to Boston a couple of weeks ago for the International Trauma Conference. And um, I was very nervous. I actually took a whole box of books and I'm standing at the podium in the, and asking these very, I mean, these are the people that you read in all our manuals, um, guys that have been in the, this business for years and years. And I'm asking, you know, will you join me at Senate hearings? This is the sub, you are the subject matter experts in this field. And when they're telling us that we're not doing anything close to effective training and treatment um, with what we're doing right now, I can't do this alone. 
So I'm recruiting as so I was, I've pinned lots of comments to, and, and I'm, I've given out way more books than I've sold. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, we, we need to work together and we've got to come together, not just in our military. This is nationwide. This is worldwide. Um, which was so fascinating to talk and engage with these powerhouses uh, throughout our world um, about what is effective. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Matt Fleischman. He is the guru for what's called biofeedback. Um, and he was talking about all his research, 20 years of research and all these papers and um, you know documents that he had. And he took it to the VA and the VA dismissed it all. And he, I was baffled, but he, he said they dismissed it because it's effective. You know, the, the VA didn't want to hear it because they have their own way and, you know, they're very medicine driven, medication driven. Um, and they didn't want to hear it, but after 20 sessions of biofeedback, that's 30 minute sessions, um, people were well and better. And off medications. No, they didn't want to hear it. So after his iteration to us, I went up with a copy of my book. And I said, get those papers ready because you're coming with me to Senate hearings. He said, I will be there. I said, you're joining. So I, you know, got this, I call it the coalition. So um, we're working on, we, again, we have to come together, like mm -hmm. effective treatment. Okay. And let's talk about PTSD for a minute. Okay. When the system, whether it's our government, whether it's a school, okay. Whether it's our childhood home, all these systems that we exist in, when the system is ill, the system is causing PTSD. So is the person ill or is the system the one that is ill? But we look at people with PTSD as having an illness. No, they're just responding to the ill nature, the, the sickness of the system that they're in. Okay, right. we're calling that person ill. Mm -mm. It's time to fix the system. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, the L, so getting back to this acronym, um, less of a disorder, say what we were just talking about. This PTSD is not a disorder, okay? It's an adaptation. They have adapted. We have learned to adapt to the faults of the system, the toxicity of the system. Mm -hmm. and, and yet we keep looking at the individual as the problem. No, that's why I go after the system's approach that we have to fix the system, mm -hmm. um, address the culture. We have to make those changes. And I told the leadership at Fort Riley, I'd love to bring this to you pro bono. I'd love to help you do this because at the center of our country is Fort Riley, right? Kansas, center of our country, by no mistake. I believe in this wholeheartedly and it will start here. Um, and then the P stands for perceived versus real threats, okay? Dr. Gentry in uh, so much of his training um, talks about real versus perceived threats. So many of our my patients uh, and myself, and you could probably account for this too, um, is when we, when we feel a feeling of threat, it's not usually what's happening now. Something in the here and now is reminding us of a threat, but usually it's more so the stuff that's happened to us that now we're perceiving a threat in the here and now, okay? Um, and so if we're not addressing that linkage, okay, um, in, you know, and in, in reframing different things and bringing ourselves back present, all these things, grounding, centering skills, lots of things clinically, mm -hmm. then, then we're going to be in trouble, okay? We're going to we're going to be flooded with intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, and then not being able to be here and now, which is, is a real struggle. Um, and look at just the pandemic that we just came out of that, you know, all of a sudden COVID's gone, but the pandemic by itself was traumatic for our world. Trauma. We'd never been through anything like this before. 
we were so isolated and carted off. And, uh, um, and so now in the here and now, we rarely hear of COVID, but somebody gets sick or a sneeze or a sniffle. Okay. What happens? We go back to that, those same feelings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so all day, every day, like this is just the innate way that our body works and our brains work. And so, so much of what Dr. Gentry and I try to do in the book is, is discuss these biological things that are at play that if we're not aware of, we're never going to get better. Okay. So we have to, this is a cesspool of all these things. I had a a patient that I actually served with. He's the only person that I know to date that has read the book from front to back. Um, Even my husband hasn't read the book, which is, I need to get on him, but um, I won't take that personal. He's real busy, but, um, but this patient, he said, Tara, you scare me. And I said, what do you mean? I scare you. And he said, well, uh, he said, 1% rights, of, or he said, 1% of our nation serves in the military. And he said, 1% of our nation or people write a book. And I said, okay, you still haven't told me. So he's like, you represent the 0.0001%. I was like, okay, you still haven't told me why I scare you. And he said, Tara, um, and again, he's served in the military for 27 years. Um, he knows me personally and he sits with me in treatment now, but he, he said, you know, the threat and the danger of what you're doing and what you're up against, but you're doing it anyway. And I said, I'm deathly afraid. Deathly. I mean, I've had, I have had death threats, um, you know, during writing this book and, and different things, people don't want this out. And so I had, had this book been out two years ago. Okay. It was very angrily, angrily written. I was going after individuals that's not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Accountability does nothing. Okay. If we go after general so-and-so and this person, because they missed that, it does nothing to change the system. Okay. We've plucked a couple of people out of there, but we still haven't done nothing to change the system. Okay. So if that does nothing, now we still need to hold people accountable, but the best accountability isn't a chapter or a medical board or uh, whatever we can send people out. The best kind of accountability is personal accountability. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, hey, Sean, get your stuff together. That's not appropriate. We shouldn't even have to build counseling statements. Mm-hmm. Okay, we shouldn't. Okay, when our culture starts shifting to allow for the learning, mm-hmm. allow for the learning, the learning is the process. Mm-hmm. Okay, the learning, we don't just, we don't just have a general officer one day without failure in a learning process. Why do we expect it with Joe Snuffy? as specialist Joe Snuffy. Yeah. Okay. We have two, actually we have four different sets of standards in our military, junior enlisted and senior enlisted, junior officer and senior officer. Mm -hmm. We don't have much accountability for senior officers. Okay. We quietly retire them and sweep it under the rug and on about our day. Okay. We know how to hold these junior soldiers accountable and, and we're losing these soldiers in droves. Why? Because we gotten lazy as leaders and, and don't want to do our part and, and it takes time. We want it right now, but then we'll get mad at these soldiers because they want it right now. Mm-hmm. That's a culture thing, you know? And so yeah. we have to start looking at ourselves as part of the system. What can I do to affect that culture? Because every one of us affect that culture. We don't need a mandate or a law or go to the policy levels to start affecting the, the culture change at Fort Riley, Kansas right. or wherever. Tara, I want to thank you for your time today, for this uh, knowledge bomb that, <laughs> that you dropped onto my head. Uh, I hope that the listeners, how can they get a hold of this book? Um, it's a very important and poignant book 
about the the mental health struggles that some of our servicemen and women are dealing with now and how they can be taken seriously and how they can have help. Um, you know, where can they find this book? Yeah, so um, you can get this book on anywhere you can think to buy a book. You just can't get it in store because it was self-published. Mm-hmm. Um, it did not go through a legal review or it never passed a legal review. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a self-published book. Um, <clears throat> but uh, at the end of the day, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, the Writers Republic website is the best place to get it because I, you know, I would just say I get the most royalties out of that. But at the end of the day, um, you get it wherever you can. You can also um, you can uh, text me uh, or email me. I'll give you my email contact um, if you want a signed copy. Or um, I have lots on hand, so uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself. And I, I love that personal nature of um, sharing with people that connection um, because this book is not just for our veterans or people that have served. Uh, People, anybody that works in any system or operate has operated in any system, which is all of us, can understand the the nuances of this book and and reap the benefit of taking a look at yourself within that system to address the things within yourself to affect the change in the system. Um, so police, law enforcement, schools, all of these things, we operate in these systems and mm-hmm. it's time that, that we as a people start one, doing that U-turn and looking at ourselves and affecting our self-change, okay, through self-reflection and those things and then apply them um, in, within the system. <clears throat> well, I certainly wish you uh, all the luck in the world as you uh, sort of embark on getting this book out there. I hope more ears are open to it. Uh, to our listeners, uh, please check it out. We'll have links in the description to be able to purchase it. Uh, your email, uh, Tara, as well. So in case they want to reach out to you with their own personal story or if they want to get get, uh, get a book from you, um, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me as well at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I'd love to hear from my audience about our discussion today. Um, certainly one of the more in-depth and uh, meaningful uh, podcast that I think I've done thus far. Uh, I just want to thank you, Tara, for your time today. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you for those kind and generous words. Um, I, I have chills. Um, and when that happens, it's a, it's a connection that you can't even put into words. So, um, thank you so much for all that you're doing to get not just my story out, but so many people, um, just to really share and, and the knowledge of what's out there and, and really hopefully invigorate some change. Uh, we all can use that. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Hope to see you all again on a future episode of the Scuttlebutt. Thank you for watching this episode of the Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, They have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. 
or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured tobacco-free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information, or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, tobacco-free Adagio Health, for your support.